Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, January 24th, 2022. This year, we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Euro. And you know, I'm thinking about becoming a crypto guy. Got my eye on this new crypto. You heard about it, Katrina? Nope. It's called Cryptobenthic. And you should get in now because there's nowhere to go but up. Okay, so we're talking about a beautifully colored and curious fish and a great ocean dad, from what I understand, the scaly head sculpin. Our special guest is a diver, a sculpin enthusiast, researcher, and 3D sculpin skeleton reconstructionist, Dr. Thaddeus Buser, who's a postdoc at Rice University and based in Seattle. So welcome. Thanks. Happy to be here. Okay, so first question, you know, this is a marine species found as far north as the Aleutian Islands and Kodiak Island in Alaska, from what I understand, all the way down to California. And we'd love if you could really just kind of take us down to the seafloor, help us get a feel for what this fish looks like if you were to dive down and come face to face with one of them. Yeah. So uh, the great thing about these fish is that they are highly variable in their coloration. Yeah, they're small. They're in a kind of ecological classification of that fish biologists like to call a cryptobenthic species. So they, they sit on the bottom and they're hard to see. And that's kind of their how they live their lives. So if you dive down, they're very abundant, but you often don't see them unless you really know what you're looking for and you're capable of sitting still for long periods of time. I did my master's degree in Fairbanks, Alaska, and so I did almost all of my scuba diving in South Central Alaska, and I actually did a study looking at the color variation in intertidal and and shallow nearshore sculpins generally, and I looked at our tedious herringtonite in particular, the scalyhead sculpin, and it, it turns out that not only are they super variable when you just kind of find them, but they can actually change their color to, to match the background that they're sitting on. So sometimes they're pink, sometimes they're all black, sometimes they're black and white. They're usually some combination of colors that range from very deep red and bright pink to browns and blacks and greens. I noticed that in some of the photographs online, they kind of have a pinkish color and like a fleshy looking thing on their head. What's all that about? The little doodad on their head is only really enlarged in males. And it's not really clear what they're doing with it. It's very sexually dimorphic. And so it probably has to do with part of the breeding display of a, you know, large and in charge, sexually mature male. And it's associated with exaggeration of other features that you find in males. So in males, the mouth is really, really big. The lips are really, really big. They have this bright yellow coloration on the skin of their throat, which in technical terms is the branchiostical membrane. It's kind of the fold of skin that seals the gill plate to the rest of the body when when they're breathing or suction feeding. They'll actually be, they can actually flare that out like one of those Australian lizards or, you know, the Dilophosaurus in in Jurassic Mm. Park. They can flare it out and show this bright yellow membrane. Dang. And they will do it to other males. Like, I mean, it looks like you're looking at, 
you know, an anolis lizard or some other lizardy thing that you think of. So they use color in all kinds of interesting ways, not only for camouflage, but also for getting attention. And what's cool is all of the bright stuff is basically hidden on the underside of them. And so they can preferentially show it when they want to. Mm -hmm. And so they're not constantly advertising, hey, I'm this big, beautiful fish. They only really do it when they want to get somebody's attention on purpose. And that's probably... Yeah. From predation, right? You don't want to get eaten if you're showing your colors all the time. That's cool. So yeah. So what can you tell us about their skulls? What are you learning about their skulls and their horns through your research? Yeah. So in terms of the scaly head sculpin, one of their kind of reproductive biology, ecology behavior things is that in addition to kind of flexing out that branchiostical membrane, they flare out parts of their gill plate, in particular, this bone called the preopercle, and it has these spines that come off of it. And if anyone has ever encountered a sculpin in real life, the spines are probably the one thing they remember about them because they're very sharp and they poke you really well. And scaly head sculpins use it to intimidate other scaly head sculpins. One of the questions that I'm looking at in my research is whether the shape of the spines that come off of these bones basically evolve the way that deer antlers and cow horns evolve or whether they seem to evolve more for just protecting them from being eaten by another fish. And I use these CT reconstructions of their bones to to get at that question. Yeah, that really gives kind of an interesting view if you can look at a skull. They're quite fascinating looking. So I was looking at some of your work before we jumped on here, and I see you're doing a lot of CT scans with the skeletons of these fish. And it got me thinking, I was back in ichthyology conference earlier this year and seeing that there was actually more and more people kind of looking at these skeletons. And I was curious if this is a trend that you're seeing out there. So the CT scanning stuff that I've done is part of kind of a bigger movement among researchers who study, you know, anatomy and compare anatomy across species to basically CT scan individuals of, I mean, the the idea is to CT scan an individual of every genus of every vertebrate and put it online for free so that anyone who's interested can access it and download it and ask questions that they want to with it or, or teach or whatever. That's cool. And all the CT scanning that I've done has been kind of part of that. And so I have like 600 CT scans that are up on this website called morphosource.org. They're freely available for anybody to access and download and, and do what they will with them. It's part of kind of this movement of trying to make science accessible to anybody. I've had messages from like teachers in Spain who have downloaded the scans and made visuals for their, you know, like high school classes and things like that. And so it, it appears that, that, you know, some people, some people are, are in fact taking advantage of it. You already did a fabulous job of describing what these fish look like, but I was wondering if there's any key characteristics that someone could use to identify a scaly head sculpin if they come across one in its range. That is kind of the number one question that I get 
Sculpins, as anyone who's ever seen them uh, knows, are very difficult to tell apart if you haven't, you know, dedicated years of your life to that task. So like the kind of new trend of micro fishing where people, it's like birding, but they're catching small fish or fish in general and kind of making lists of all the species they've caught with the intention of having a really big list. I get a lot of Sculpin ID questions like on Twitter from people that are doing that. If you come across a sculpin in a tide pool or, you know, if you're fishing off of a jetty or something and you come across a sculpin and you want to know what it is, the most important things you can look at are whether it has scales on it. Most sculpins don't have a lot of scales. And when they do, they tend to be in these very distinct patterns. And so if it has single row of scales on each side of it, that tells you that that you're looking at usually a fish in the genus Artedius, which is what the scaly head sculpin is in. And the other really big thing to look at is the shape of the spines that come off of its gill plates, those preopercular spines. The shape of those spines can be unique to that species in particular, or at least gets you close So between the scales and the spines, you can usually get down to one or two candidate species just on those two traits. A scaly head sculpin, they only have really one distinct spine that comes off of their preopercle and it forks at the very, very end of it, this kind of subtle split that happens. And so between that And the shape of their scale pattern, that's usually enough to get you very, very close to scaly head. And then if you really want to slam home the ID, if it's a male, it'll have these big canine teeth that are not like the teeth of other sculpins, especially sculpins that size in this area or where scaly heads occur. They also have that big superorbital cirrus that looks kind of like a deer antler almost in some of them. And that yellow throat, they're the only ones that have that. It's much more pronounced in the males, though. So if you get a male, it's, it's usually pretty obvious. If you get a female or an immature male, you have to look a little closer to make sure that the shape of the preopercal spine is what you're looking for. And if you really want to get really specific, you can actually look at the number of scale rows that they have in that little scale band that they have on their sides. Yeah, that's... That's basically it. So it sounds like these fish can be somewhat territorial, but you also said that there's a lot of them down there when you get to looking for them. So I'm just curious, what kind of territory do these fish operate in? And then how do they just protect them and live down there? Yeah, so I had a kind of an accidental experiment happen with precisely that question. I do all of my CT scanning I do at this research facility in the San Juan Islands in Puget Sound. And I was out there and had a tank full of a bunch of different kinds of sculpins, live sculpins. And I had made, you know, this nice little habitat for them. I had like all these rocks and I had little gravel and plants and stuff like that in there for them to kind of hang out in. And what I noticed is that there were, by happenstance, an equal number of male scaly head sculpins and rocks that were the size of cobbles. And each one of them sat underneath its rock. And if another male of its species had to be its species and had to be male, if another male of its species came close to its rock, it would chase it away. 
and get all up in its face and, you know, chase it around the aquarium and then go back into its little hole. And I noticed that because at feeding time, I'd drop a bunch of food in and they all kind of congregate where the food was. And if that happened to be by somebody's rock, mm -hmm. that individual would get really upset. One morning I came in and I noticed that someone else had set up a tank in that room and they had taken one of the rocks out of my aquarium. Uh -oh. And there was a dead sculpin in there. There was a dead oh. you know, scaly head sculpin. And I was like, whoa, that, that's interesting. So I dissected it and it had all of these like stab wounds all over its face. We'll never know the truth. Truth is always unknowable, but it appears to me that that fish either lost its rock or somebody bigger lost their rock. And that this individual who died, died fighting basically for territory. Oh, man. So I think that the territory can be rather small cobble-sized rocks or the equivalent area thereof, some big rocky reef. And if you go to some, you know, rocky reef habitat, you'll find sculpins hiding out. All they need is a little cave that they can hide in. That's what they, what they breed in. The males will find a little cave and attract females to come into the cave. And if the female likes the cave, she'll lay her eggs in it and then let the male mate with her. And it's not totally clear how territorial they are outside of the breeding season. So depending on where you are, the breeding season can basically be constant or narrow, and that might have a big impact on how territorial these fish are. Can you talk a little bit about their breeding strategy? I mean, it sounds like they're, they're territorial. Is it just during the breeding season or, you know, if, you know just location-based? As far as I know, no one has investigated whether they are territorial outside of the breeding season. What's neat, though, is sculpins are really, really fascinating in terms of how they reproduce and what they do with their eggs. It's highly variable, but they have a fertilization mechanism that is unique to sculpins. In a normal fertilization event, you know, the sperm travels down this, this tube, goes into the center of the egg and fertilizes it, and the egg starts dividing. In sculpins, the sperm will, will travel down this tube and right at the point where it's about to cross the ooplasmic membrane, which is the thing that once it crosses that fertilization happens, the egg starts dividing, and it'll sit there and it'll pause and it'll freeze like that. And it will remain in suspended animation indefinitely until the egg moves from ovarian fluid to seawater. And it's thought that the change in salinity and other kinds of, you know, chemical attributes of the seawater causes the sperm then to, to complete the mission and fertilize the egg. And it's at that point that they, that it fertilizes and starts dividing. The female doesn't have internal fertilization. She has internal insemination, but not fertilization. And she will then travel around with these eggs that are ready to be fertilized. And because they're not fertilized, though, she doesn't have to have any of the biological means of removing biological waste products and giving them nutrition or anything like that. She basically has the ability to choose very specifically where she wants to lay her eggs without a male having to be there for that moment, but doesn't have to do any of the metabolic kind of care for them while she's deciding where they're going to go. Do the males then help guard the eggs? Is it the same male that initially fertilized? So that's the really interesting thing. It's not the same male that fertilized. The female is laying eggs that were fertilized by her previous partner. 
And then once she lays those eggs, she's receptive to mating with the male that, you know, where she lays her eggs from the previous male. And so what you get is you get all of these males who are guarding nests that they are not the father of any of the eggs. And which doesn't make any sense in terms of the male's commitment to parental care because he's not getting anything out of these eggs, except that he gets opportunities to mate with females depending on how nice his nest is. And so if he has a bunch of eggs that he's neglecting or if he has no eggs in his nest, females don't want to mate with him. You end up at a point where the breeding season is over, but there's still some eggs that haven't fully developed yet. And the males will just abandon all of them because there's no reason for them to keep caring for them because they're not their op. Oh, bummer. I'd be a little curious to hear more about some of the work that you were doing and finding these sculpins and what kind of special gear you might have had to do, have to, you know, go scuba diving in the frigid waters of Alaska. And then also how you collected those ones for like, say in the aquarium that you're talking about, were you using like a trap or a dip net or what were you using? Yeah. So scuba diving in Alaska is if you can do it there, you can do it anywhere. It's dry suits. It is usually multiple layers of either specialized or like military thermals that you wear underneath the dry suit to keep yourself warm because the water is 37 degrees usually. We would go diving in the early spring and so the air would usually be below freezing, sometimes way below freezing. If you spit into your mask, your spit just instantly freezes up like that. It's all free. It's all basically dealing with stuff that freezes the second that you put any kind of moisture (laughs) on it and having to adapt everything that you do around that kind of (laughs) limitation. But catching sculpins is, you know, if you liked going out and flipping over rocks as a kid, which I confess I did and still do. (laughs) I did too. I did too. It's very fun because it's basically all of the skills that you developed as a kid being put to, you know, a more formal kind of application. So like one of the main ways that I collect sculpins is going out at very low tides with some dip nets and a bucket and chasing them around in tide pools. That's extremely effective, especially if you get, you know, some of the really, really low tides in the early summertime, you can get some real weirdos in the low tide pools. They live in these kinds of nooks and crannies, you know, that they hide out in during the day. They'll live, you know, anywhere from like 60 feet to low intertidal. When they do come out, they're very, very curious. And you can dive down to these rocky reefs. And if you just come crashing down and kind of make a bit of a scene, but then you just kind of sit there all these little heads will slowly start poking out from like the, you know, the nooks and crannies and they'll slowly start kind of hopping out towards you. They don't have swim bladders, so they're, they're negatively buoyant. And so they literally do kind of hop out. It's really funny. They use their pelvic fins and their pectoral fins and hop around like that. So they'll all come and check you out. You really don't have to go looking much further unless you want to start flipping over rocks. If I'm having tides, like low tides that happen at night, like in the wintertime, I will go around in shallow areas because when it's dark out, they're not worrying about birds coming after them, which is like a major source of predator 
for, for shallow water fishes. And so they're much more just kind of out in the open and you just take a light around and you walk around in knee deep water and you can find fishes that are usually strictly subtitle cruising around and they're looking for amphipods and, and things like that and, and scoop them up with a dip net. When I'm scuba diving though, dip nets are great if I'm doing kind of like highly invasive methods where I'm flipping rocks over and, and trying to like find them and catch them before they realize that they've been found kind of thing. But if you are doing the technique where you go down to the reef and you kind of stir up some stuff and then you sit there and wait for their curiosity to get the best of them, the dip nets are very ineffective. And actually it was taught this when I was an undergraduate, a professor at the University of Washington, who basically, he was my sculpin guru and, and, and showed me the ways of, of finding them and, and a lot of tricks for identifying them and things like that. He just takes a big gallon Ziploc bag and puts it near the sculpin because they're very well camouflaged and they assume that you can't see them unless you make it very, very obvious that you can by like staring at them or doing something weird. Um, if you're kind of, if you can notice it and then kind of like <laughs> pretend like, oh, I'm looking over here, like, don't worry about me, buddy, you know, it, which really works. Like They really know when you're looking at it, it's weird. I can't, I mean, it's something about the eyes or something. I'm not sure what it is, but they really seem to know when you're locked in on them. So you just kind of act all nonchalant. And you put an open Ziploc bag in front of them. And then you take your other hand and you just kind of slowly kind of move it towards them. And they'll nine times out of 10, just go straight into the bag. And then you just close the bag. <laughs> and so when I'm scuba diving, that's basically the, that's the main way that I'm catching them is just by getting them to go into an open bag that then I close up and put in my, my dive bag. Right on. <laughs> If you could give an elevator pitch about why people should care about sculpins, get interested in sculpins, what would you say? Sculpins are one of the most dominant intertidal groups of fishes. And so for a marine fish, they are extremely accessible to anybody that can go to the coast. And you don't even need a really low tide to be able to find them. And the, the diversity of colors and shapes and weird aspects of their biology and ecology, like that, you know, unique form of fertilization. And so to have such a evolutionarily, ecologically, biologically important and interesting group of fishes that are also very important for like the biology and ecology of lingcods and other game fishes. To have something like that that is so close and so easy to go out and look at for yourself and be able to appreciate, there's just nothing like that around here. They are the thing. <laughs> They're the <laughs> most accessible I'm a little biased, yeah, right. <laughs> tell, but there's, there's nothing that is as diverse for species and ecology and biology that is so abundant and accessible that's around here. Sweet. Well, thank you, Thaddeus. This was a fascinating discussion about these sculpins. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk about sculpins, especially with fellow fish enthusiasts uh, such as yourself. So my pleasure. 
All right. Well, we hope everybody gets out there and enjoys all the fish, including all the sculpins. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore, production management by Gabriella Montaguin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.